Welcome. You are listening to Aftersight. This recording is intended solely for individuals who are blind or have low vision. Thank you for joining us for Opera News. My name is Keith. The following articles are from the February 2024 Opera with Opera News magazine, and we'll begin with Highway to Rediscovery. L.A. Opera's James Conlon talks to Rebecca Poller. James Conlon began his tenure as music director of the Los Angeles Opera in 2006. During his second season with the company, he created the Recovered Voices Project, producing operas that had been suppressed by the Nazis. In February 2008, he conducted the initiative's first fully staged production, a double bill of Derisverg, The Dwarf, by Alexander Zemlinsky, and... There is a Broken Krug, The Broken Jug, by Victor Ullman. This season, almost 16 years to the day after Zerverg entered the repertory of LAO, the one-act opera will be revived on February 24th, paired with the first company performance of Highway 1 USA by the African-American composer William Grant Still. Both will be conducted by Conlon, and the tenor Roderick Dixon, who scored a personal triumph in Derisberg in 2008, will reprise the title role in that opera. In December, I spoke to Conlon about Recovered Voices and its expansion to include composers of color, in addition to those whose work was silenced by the Holocaust. Rebecca Poller The Recovered Voices project is 16 years old, this season, you are bringing back Zemlinski's Der's Werk, which had its premiere in 1922 at the Stadt Theater in Cologne, and presenting it with William Grant Still's Highway 1 USA, which was composed in the 1940s, had its premiere in 1963 at an American music festival at the University of Miami, and has no connection to the Holocaust. James Conlon Derzverg, based on the short story The Birthday of the Infanta by Oscar Wilde, which in turn was inspired by Velasquez's 1656 painting Las Meninas, is about a Spanish princess, the daughter of King Philip II of Spain, who receives the present of a dwarf for her birthday. The dwarf, who possesses a generous and artistic soul, is unaware of his physical deformity and falls tragically in love with the Infanta. We are bringing it back because it's a particularly excellent production, one of the best in my tenure at L.A. Opera, brilliantly directed by Darko Treshnok. We also have a growing awareness that the United States has a moral obligation to pay more attention to the music of African-American composers. It seemed like a perfect match to Perizimlinski, 1781 to 1942, with William Grant Still, 1895 to 1978, one of the leading lights of American black composers. Still lived in Los Angeles for decades and died here, not far from my house. There was a one-act opera by Still, readily edited, the 2021 production of Highway One at the Opera Theater of St. Louis. It was a good matchup. In a way, these operas and their composers are both related and totally unrelated. 
the story of the composers who were suppressed by the Nazis, and the hundreds of stories that go with that, has nothing whatsoever to do with the history of African-American composers. However, the phenomenon is the same. Basically, there is excellent music that has been neglected to begin with, or fallen into disfavor, or not performed, or blocked from being performed. It all comes down to the fact that the music was suppressed because of racial prejudice. It was one kind of racial prejudice in the U.S., and another in the European countries under Nazi domination. But what it comes down to is the same thing. The music is neglected. This was an opportunity to put these works together, and we took it. RP. Let's talk about William Grant Still's music for Highway 1 USA. What were his inspirations? J.C. William Grant Still wanted to portray the real lives of people, unlike the stereotypical views of African Americans that were presented by many white composers, producers, and writers. Still's characters are simple, uncomplicated persons living life as it is. In this respect, I think that his philosophy is remarkably similar to Puccini's. Yes, this is American music, and yes, there is definite harmony and the background of jazz and all of that. But at the same time, Puccini's famous remark comes to mind. I write about the tragedy of little souls. I think this was part of Still's aesthetic, that he wanted to show people as they are. There is a Verismo idea behind it, and the setting in this opera is contemporary America, though a lot of his earlier works did not have contemporary settings. Still felt that race was not essential to the shared humanity of the plot. And Highway 1 is about a family, is a domestic drama. The domestic dramas written a few years earlier, Vanessa, Regina, The Tenderland, also tell stories about families. That was in the air. Still reflects those times with an idiom that is very much his own. I see Highway 1 as being related, on the one hand, to these works, but having something that was very much his and nobody else's. R.P. How did Still feel about the work of other composers of the era? J.C. I think he was frustrated with John Carlo Minotti's incredible success. Minotti was a younger man, born in 1911. He was 16 years Still's junior. And he came to America and suddenly was everywhere, with works in major opera houses and on Broadway. Still made one criticism about Minotti. Too much constant text, he said of Minotti's operas. Still himself tried to have a balance, and he wasn't aware of aria and recitative. He actually was very classical in that regard while he was constructing his operas, and he put a lot of emphasis on the importance of melodic music, not taking a text and having the characters just talk, but setting a text. He knew what he wanted, and he didn't like it when he had a text he couldn't alter. Apparently, he had difficulty working with Langston Hughes on the full-length opera Troubled Island, which was completed in 1939 and premiered in 1949 at New York City Opera. This very important chemical struggle between words and music has been going on for centuries. 
still had his own way of dealing with it. He began working with his assistant, Verna Arvey, who became his second wife. She wrote the librettos for most of his operas, including Highway 1 USA. He wanted melody to be an important part of his work, and it is. R.P. You have brought the music of Zemlinsky to the forefront with your performances and recordings of his orchestral music and operas. Where did your passion for Zemlinsky come from? J.C. It started in Cologne in 1991, when I was 41. I had conducted a performance that evening and eaten dinner at my favorite Italian restaurant. While I was driving home, a four or five minute drive, I turned the radio on. I heard this music I could not identify and was struck by its extraordinary beauty. I sat outside my house and waited until the end of the piece because I just had to know what it was. It was Zemlinsky's D.C. Jungfrau, The Mermaid, a symphonic poem based on the Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale. All I knew about Zemlinsky was that, somehow or other, he was part of the circle around Mahler, and that he had written the Lyric Symphony. The experience brought me into the awareness of how much music we don't know, how many composers, how many volumes of music remain basically neglected. And it's not that D. C. Jungfrau was completely unperformed, but it was played less than it ought to have been. My mission is something that grew organically. I said to myself, how did I get to be 41, having lived music day and night from the time I was 11? How could I have gotten to my age and never heard this music before? And then I put myself in everybody else's place. When people say, I never heard this music, I don't blame them. None of us had. My mission is to get them into the theater or concert hall to hear the music. It's the same now. William Grant Still is another example. I have a feeling there's a lot of music there, and we should all be getting to know it and hearing it and performing it. It's the same phenomenon. R.P. Deris Verg is adapted from The Birthday of the Infanta by Oscar Wilde. Yet the notion of composing works about an ugly man who falls in love with a beautiful woman is said to have haunted Zemlinsky throughout his life. J.C. The link is without a question Alma Schindler. They met in Vienna in 1900 when he was 28 and she was 20. He was exceedingly short, with bulging eyes, and a receding chin. She was statuesque and lovely. He became her composition teacher, and they began a romance, though she wrote in her memoirs how dreadfully ugly he was and short, and how they used to walk in the parks in Vienna, and he only came up to her shoulder. Their affair, supposedly never consummated, which I don't believe at all, left a deep wound in Zemlinsky, when she abandoned him for Gustav Mahler in 1901. Quite simply, she got a bigger opportunity. Though Zemlinsky was to marry twice, he never got over Alma's rejection and his feeling of being small. You can see the link in Der's Verg, the parallels with this small, highly gifted individual who is basically played with like a toy by the princess and then cruelly dumped. 
You can also see the link in DC Jungfrau, which is the story of the Little Mermaid. He's the mermaid. There are also parallels in Zemlinsky's opera Ein Florentinisch Tragedy, a Florentine tragedy, where an ugly businessman husband finds his beautiful wife at home with a prince. All of this, I believe, is in the shadow of Alma. R.P. Zemlinsky, whose maternal grandfather was Jewish, was granted permission to leave Austria for the U.S. in 1938, following the Anschluss, when friends in America agreed to sponsor him and arrived in New York in December 1938. Four years earlier, Still had moved from New York, where he was part of the Harlem Renaissance, to Los Angeles. I don't suppose they ever met, but were the two men familiar with each other's work? J.C. Zemlinski was 24 years older than Still, and when he arrived in the United States he was 67 and in ill health. He did get to see one of his works performed by the New York Philharmonic, and met up one last time with his former student Arnold Schoenberg, but he died in 1942 in Larchmont, New York. Before Zemlinski arrived in Manhattan, Still had moved to Los Angeles, where his career was on an upswing. He received a Guggenheim Fellowship, began to work on the first of his nine operas, and by 1936 was guest conducting the Los Angeles Philharmonic at the Hollywood Bowl. There would have been no dialogue between the two that I would imagine would be possible, and there's no similarity in their music. But they had one connection. Zemlinski set four of the seven poems in his song cycle, Symphonisch Gesang, including the powerful Song for a Dark Girl, about the horror of losing a lover to a senseless murder, to the poetry of Langston Hughes, Still's Troubled Island librettist. I'm very proud of L.A. Opera for being able to put these two works together and to celebrate two very different types of composers whose work is still neglected. Not unknown, but neglected. James Conlon conducts Kinesa Shaw's new production of Highway 1 USA in a double bill with Darko Trezjak's staging of Derisverg, opening on February 24th, with casts including Nicole Heaston, Norman Garrett, Roderick Dixon, and Erica Petricelli. And now, what makes a man? Justin Austin talks to Mark Thomas Ketterson. It was an extraordinary moment in an otherwise humdrum press conference at Lyric Opera of Chicago earlier last year. The 2023-24 season had been revealed and reporters' questions answered. Just as things were winding down, an announcement was made that the gathering would be treated to a selection from one of the upcoming season's offerings, accompanied by piano. In walked a strikingly handsome young man, whose poise and easy elegance garnered attention, even before he opened his mouth to sing the aria, What Makes a Man a Man?, from Terence Blanchard's Champion. Once he began, it was clear that something special was happening. It wasn't simply a matter of beautiful sound, though his warm, buttery tone caressed the ear delightfully. There was something that went straight to the heart, an inviting, communicative thing 
that created a frisson throughout the dreary room. The young man was the American baritone Justin Austin. At the relatively tender age of 33, Austin has been turning heads at the Metropolitan Opera and beyond for his meticulously crafted, exquisitely vocalized interpretations of music from the standard operatic repertory, as well as a rapidly growing collection of roles in contemporary music. He has won great acclaim for his work off-Broadway, and has even performed with popular and jazz legends such as Elton John, Aretha Franklin, and Wynton Marsalis. At the time of this interview, Austin was in the midst of a run at Washington National Opera as Mercutio in Gounod's Romeo et Juliette. He made his lyric opera debut in 2022, jumping into the leading role of Charles in Blanchard's Fire Shut Up in My Bones. And the warmth he projected in that press conference wasn't an act. A conversation with Austin reveals him to be an unusually thoughtful man. Austin's ease on stage is no surprise. He has been performing professionally since the age of three. He was born in Stuttgart, and both his parents are Juilliard-trained opera singers. The tenor Michael Austin and mezzo-soprano Altuise Devon. He remembers going on stage as a toddler hidden in his mother's skirts. The first piece of music he recalls hearing is Canio's Vesti la Giuba from Pagliacci, a recording by Pavarotti, who was a family friend. He made an unofficial debut as an infant, playing Clara's baby in the opening scene of Porgy and Bess, and in an endearing bit of synchronicity, he made his baritone debut in Lintz years later as Jake, the child's father. It was the best thing that could have happened to me, Austin explains. I grew up with music in my DNA. They say it takes a village to raise a child. My village was a bunch of opera singers. Suzanne Menser was my mother's best friend. Hilda Harris was around. George Shirley was a huge presence. Also Eric Owens, who is extraordinary, as I will be starring with him in Champions at Lyric. I always wanted to be an opera singer, and I never wavered. I was in high school before I was aware of the rarity of black opera singers, because almost every opera singer I knew was black. I never thought there wouldn't be opportunities for me. Austin was soon a hard-working boy soprano, performing at the Teatro Real, the Bregenzer Festspiel, Lincoln Center, and the Kennedy Center. That all came to an end in Atlanta, when his voice broke in the middle of a performance. I had a duet with a tenor. We began as tenor and soprano, and ended as tenor and some kind of weird tenor thing. I was terrified. I was eleven, and I thought it was over for me. But my mother was my rock. A new direction opened for him when he attended a performance of the Boys' Choir of Harlem. That changed everything. A stage full of young black boys singing Schubert, gospel, jazz. I'd never heard anything like it. Austin enrolled in the Choir Academy of Harlem and quickly rose to the top of the heap, becoming lead soloist. He subsequently attended the LaGuardia High School of Music and Art, 
then entered the Manhattan School of Music, where he began an association with the soprano Catherine Malfitano. I have studied with her for fourteen years, he says softly. She is everything to me. I get emotional thinking about it. The young baritone's talent was soon noticed by Thomas Hampson, who invited him to the Heidelberg Lied Academy and remains an important mentor today. A recent recipient of the Marian Anderson Vocal Award, Austin takes his responsibilities as an emerging African-American artist seriously. He speaks with great emotion of his participation in the Metropolitan Opera's 2021 Concert for New York at the Knockdown Center in Queens. I had this crazy big hair because barber shops were closed due to COVID. The concert was on YouTube, and I got messages from young black people telling me I was their hero, that my hair looked like their hair, and it made them feel they belonged. That's huge that I could inspire someone like that by just being there. Another primary role model for Austin is the basketball star LeBron James. I admire him on and off the court. He uses his greatness to be part of a movement of equality. Now that I'm giving master classes, I try to influence young people to give back, to use your platform to help others. The young baritone has sung a fair number of Mercutio's and Pagliacci Silvio's along with various small roles, which he has definitely made into star turns. His Ned Keane in the Met's Peter Grimes was lauded by critics and audiences alike, and an amusing thread on an internet news group found music lovers a swoon by his performance as the cop in the Met's Dead Man Walking. That last item is telling as Austin has possibly made his biggest impact to date in contemporary music. He enjoys strong working relationships with the composers Terence Blanchard and Ricky Ian Gordon, as well as the pianist and composer Damien Sneed. I love contemporary opera, he enthuses. We're there on a roller coaster together, experiencing this new thing. That's an opportunity singers rarely have. I love singing the standard repertory, but sometimes I call it the golden shackles of tradition. It's beautiful and precious, but we're sort of confined into the box of what has been. With contemporary music, the singer can be a part of the development of the piece itself. People like me who want to get down into the mud and get their hands dirty with the creative process have an opportunity to do that. He does, however, have a few dream roles. Don Giovanni is an absolute dream for me. I think it is one of the most satisfying pieces of music to listen to. I am a runner, and the Giovanni Overture is at the top of my running playlist. The role is often cast for a cavalier baritone, but I think it would be fascinating to see a 19-year-old Giovanni, not the singer, of course, but as a character. That would be so interesting and explain why he's such a hothead. Having already performed Jake and Jake's infant son in Porgy and Bess, Austin is now eyeing another assignment in Gershwin's masterwork. Not the title role, but Crown, who has the most beautiful music in the opera, but we rarely hear it. 
People are so concerned in the casting room about Crown being this big, rough guy that they often cast a singer who just barks it. You miss its beautiful qualities. I feel Crown's story is never told convincingly. Another ambition is to take on the role of Cole House Walker in Stephen Flaherty and Lynn Aron's epic musical Ragtime. We'll continue this article next time. Thank you for joining us for Opera News. My name is Keith. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aftersight.org or by calling 303-786-7777.